Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more. Lucille Clifton, in her poem, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes, wrote, They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories. And I keep remembering mine. One of her other poems, Won't You Celebrate With Me, tells of some of that history she keeps remembering. She writes, Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between sunshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come, celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Part of the history, the history in which the poet says, rightly, there is no future in the reading that Rochelle shared with us, is the one of history dressed in whiteness, at least what whiteness has meant and how it's shown up so far in our history. Part of the history that needs not to be forgotten is the part about its attempt every day and its failure so far to kill, to kill the poet, a non-white woman in America and others. Clifton was writing in the 1960s until her death in 2010, but really the story of her experience, the attempts on her life, body and spirit could be from any era of US history and even before there was a United States. You know the history, the outline at least, the 401 years since the first black slave was brought to these shores, longer for the native folk under genocidal assault, a history which for all people of color has meant existential threat from birth. If we white folk thought that was no longer true, that innate existential threat part, Well, the disproportionate number of infections and death from the COVID-19 virus 
that we have witnessed in the months since March, that should have been wake-up call enough. But the events of the last two weeks played out, most of them on video, blow by horrific blow. While they delivered the death knell to any flowing of the great river of denial we white folks might have allowed to meander through our minds with its false peace. Racism and the existential threat of it is alive. And surviving that threat daily is still a triumph of luck and resilience and determination and I do not know what else cause to celebrate, which is something not to celebrate. Soren Kierkegaard is an existential, Christian existentialist. In Sickness Unto Death, he writes that we are all under some kind of existential despair and alienation from our true Christ-like self, he would say. But he also says that as terrible as it is to wake to that reality, well, it's still better than not knowing the despair and conspiring our whole lives with it. I think that's where a lot of white folks are right now. Of course, I don't know the minds of all white folks, and I won't at all speak for people of color, though I've had conversations this week and tried to listen deeply to what folks have shared. But what I do think all of us know, all of us human beings, is a little extra measure of despair from this week, at least that's been part of the week. But also maybe if we've stayed present to despair in the way my husband's colleague invited folks to stay present to their emotions, maybe we also were reminded that despair often can be a game changer. I mean, with despair, you either yield to it, right? You either give up and you give in and you roll up your tent or into a fetal position and you go home. Or what? Or you resolve to resist and you come out, at least I often do from encounters with despair, you come out like a dragon from its lair, all fire and claw, determined to fight for and protect what's under threat, what you love, what's broken, to rescue it. Of course, for the people of color who are part of this community, and our communities at large, the experience of this week won't be the same entirely as what it's been for white folks. The truth of the evil and the sadism and the structurally sanctioned snuffing out of life and terrorism of life in these United States, that's not new news for our people of color. 
People of color in the U.S. haven't just had to worry about microaggressions, about offensive slights by store clerks, even though those can be deaths by a thousand cuts, and they haven't just had to worry about the macroaggressions of the fact that the bumbling and strangely, though familiarly arrogant white guy or gal leaps ahead and gets the promotion and the recognition before you did. It's always also been much more sinister and insidious and dangerous to be, as Clifton points out, non-white in America. Every person of color in America has pieces of the history that Clifton talks about. The one white folks don't want them to remember and reasons to celebrate yet another year of life what mother of a black man in America has not worried every time he left the house whether he would return home safe? Just start with that. If there has been good news from this last week, I would say, from my vantage point at least, it's been the freedom that all people have or feel to name the truth. I mean, if, if Donald Trump gave white folks permission to be uncivil and racist and ugly and aggressive, these days have given white leaders a chance to step up, to wrestle to name what they see and how they're committed to address it in public ways, ostensibly allowing and encouraging others to hold themselves accountable for what they say. My daughter's privileged private school board and headmistress, for instance, wrote the most jaw-dropping letter this week. It astounded me what I did not know could be part of the conversations or had been about who that community was and wanted to be and would work to become. A member who is a booster of the Cal women's basketball team sent word after a Zoom conference call in which the white coaches were saying things like, in sports, the score at the beginning of the game is 0-0. In life, it is not. And then declaring their commitment to dismantle white supremacy culture in the places that they had power to do so. The NFL has apologized to Colin Kaepernick? I mean, all around, the bastions of white power, symbolic powers of all kinds, are coming to the table. And sure, some of it is fill-in-the-blanks empty words, but it, a lot of it doesn't feel that way to me. Indian author Arundhati Roy once wrote, not only is another world possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. I don't want to be falsely optimistic, but a few quiet moments this week, I think I could hear her breathing too. 
And of course, the work is just beginning. Every speaker in every rally I've been to has made sure to drive that point home, and every listserv I've signed up for has done the same, and rightfully so. And for us here, the work is beginning too. So it's true elsewhere, but I'm not the leader of all those other places in the world. I'm a minister and a leader here, a place where we have a particular kind of work to commit to and recommit to. The purpose of church, after all, if any of you remember my first sermon here, is as far as I see it, to practice the kingdom of God, heaven on earth, being and becoming citizens of the beloved community here so we can take that embodied knowledge out into the world, outside these walls. And of course, it's not going to be enough here that we put up and held signs saying white silence is violence or to hang our black lives matter banner again, which we will, or even to issue the resolution that we are fine-tuning as we speak and will issue and circulate with people in power. It will be about how we do the work inside these walls and hold ourselves accountable for that work, too. So, for instance, some of what we have in front of us is going to be to begin more robustly naming the hurts and the places where we center whiteness here instead of seeing that the we is bigger than white folks often remember to make it, myself included. And it will be doing our work as white people to read and to learn how to be better allies and to unpack what passes for normative, what privileges we white folks have come to think we deserve and why, so that we can dismantle those. For all of us, it's going to mean committing to learning about our history, the parts that we aren't always told about, that still affect us, though, like history always does. The history of the police force, for instance, which it turns out was founded in our nation as a body to retrieve runaway slaves, which tells us about how insidiousness and racism is baked into it and needs to be baked out of it. And I think it's going to mean creating more space, more protective spaces and opportunities and getting in the staff support to facilitate spaces of healing and nurture for our people of color who, no surprise, come to church needing some things different sometimes than their white church family members do in order to be whole and healed and held. And I am sure that we will figure out what else it means to do the work here together so that we can do the work there better in the way we live in the larger world. And will there be activism, my friends? Well, we're Unitarian Universalists, so really, <laughs> we know there will be. 
We will figure out how to educate ourselves and get seats at the table so we can be part of the conversations about how to dismantle the structures that perpetuate terror and inequity. We can learn and find places where we can serve as better allies with partners who are leading the way in the work. Many I know are already connected to those groups and people who, who have been doing the work for decades. But the work, the work I'm talking about will start here, and it will start here, and we will do it together. One of my favorite parts of White Fragility is where Robin D'Angelo, the author, talks about the need to ditch the notion of our own goodness. She points out how all whites are racist because consciously or unconsciously, steeped in toxic culture, we participate knowingly and unknowingly in perpetuating the inequity and trauma of racism in America. So stop fighting to be the good white person, she says, because then you avoid any opportunity to grow, right? I mean, any criticism gets fended off like a champion fencer. Keep it, direct it to someone else. We tear apart, we white folks sometimes, other white folks so that we can maintain our status as the good white person and we don't hear the places where we have work to do because we're scared if we admit we have work to do then we're among the bad people. And it's time to get rid of the whole notion, the whole structure of this binary of the good and the bad person and to get that White folks, maybe everybody, but white folks for sure are all muddied up and in the muck of this nation's history and culture, and it's messy, and we will all get messy. That's the way to start and the only way out. I don't have the answers. Why would I? And you don't, I bet, not all of them. And anyone who says they do, they're either a narcissist or not aware of just how ignorant they really are. And yet there are wise voices out there and we will follow them. But to get where we're going, we're gonna to need to cast out the white supremacist notion of leadership as one person that we find who will show us the way and we just all get passive and follow or claim ourselves good for having chosen them to follow and reclaim what a member of the Oakland Church said in that workshop that we were part of years ago, this collective model of leadership, this model in which we acknowledge that each person has a facet a view, a perspective on the truth, gets a bit of revelation because of their life experience and reflection. And no one is off the hook in this work, and all of us must be in it together for us to figure it out, to get as much of the picture and as much of the solution as we can, and to be whole when we come through it. There is no vicarious atonement in this faith tradition. Religion, like life, like the work of anti-racism, is not a spectator sport. Everyone needs to be on the field. Poet David White, who lives in the Pacific Northwest in his poem, sometimes writes about the questions that can make or unmake a life. 
Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. Now is the time, the time we will step into relationship again with these questions, with all the passion and the commitment and the horror and the despair and the solidarity and the hope that this week has given us. The time to cast off the clothing of whiteness that the poet is right has no future and celebrate lives that do not have to survive attempts on their ability to live them, and invite all the memories into the story that we come to tell about who we are and honest telling, treat and respond to our own despair with fierce determination to step into the future, to the work that we are called to, so that when it is all over, we too can wake up dancing in the beloved community that prophets and priests and silent yearning hearts have dreamed of. Too long deferred, but if you listen, my friends, in a quiet moment, even this week, I bet you can hear the future we've dreamed of breathing. She's on her way. So let's do what we can to prepare ourselves to welcome her. Bless us all in this day, in this time, in this work, now and in the future, weeks and months and years to come. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more.